Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the fact that it is sufficient. It is completely authoritative. And it has um, everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, I thank you that the way that I try to speak really means nothing. Whether I am good with words or bad with words, um, it really means nothing. It's your spirit coupled with your word that changes our hearts, that increases our affections for Jesus, that convicts us where we need convicting, that, that takes our heart and shifts it towards wanting to glorify Christ. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that and I rest in that. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me this morning, that I would speak um, your words and not my own, that you would take my attempt at um, teaching your word and by the power of your spirit, give those words power because it's your word and convict me and show me where I need to walk more deeply with you, love you more intimately and live more in the gospel. And I pray that for all of my friends here, that every one of us would humble ourselves underneath this word and let it speak to us and show us where we can live for Christ more. Show us where we're not trusting in the gospel more. Um, we do pray, Lord, that as we study what seems to be, well, what is, Lord, commandments, what's law, that we would not take these imperatives and think that our right standing with you is dependent upon our completion or our, our non-completion of these imperatives. But we would know that that rests only in our faith in Christ and the gospel. And based on, based on faith in Jesus, trust in Him, we want to live out these commands as an act of worship. Lord, keep me from ever communicating that our right standing, our justification is based on law-keeping. May... The way we live our lives be based on worship, motivated by joy in knowing Jesus. I thank you, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in Matthew um, since the beginning of December, and we'll definitely be in it for a while. Um, We've come to chapter 5, and chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is really the first of five major teaching discourses that Jesus gives us in the book of Matthew. And this first one is probably one of the most famous sermons that Jesus has ever preached um, or taught on. And there's, there's, a, there's a definite flow. It's not just kind of um, random little teachings that kind of... Uh, Matthew decided to piece together in a certain little order. He thought that would be neat. There's actually um, a definite flow that Jesus is doing as he's teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. One, and your, your Bible will probably have little headings, but one thing connects to the next. And so um, just to kind of give you an idea of what's going on, um, the next couple weeks, possibly three, we'll have to see how I'm going to do this, um, you'll see at 521... Um, the rest, of the, the rest of the book there, I'm sorry, the rest of the chapter, not the book, the rest of the, the chapter of five has really six headings. You'll see anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love your enemies. Now, that wasn't necessarily um, the way Matthew wrote it. Those little titles have been added for us. But you'll see there's six headings, and these six headings um, are going to kind of make up for us the outline for the next either two weeks or three weeks. So let me kind of let you know how, we get, how we're getting to those six headings. Um, Matthew 5, Jesus starts off with the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins with the Beatitudes. So what he's done here is, um, in, in chapter 5, he starts off with the Beatitudes, which is the gospel, not works. Now, Matthew is written to, to people who are primarily Jewish, and so they're automatically, these, these people are very familiar with the Old Testament, and they know the scriptures, which is... Um, there's tons of laws, and the Pharisees and the scribes have taken these laws and really kind of formed them. Uh, all right, this is how we're going to be righteous, and so we're going to do these extra laws to make sure we keep these laws. In other words, like um, the Bible says on the Sabbath not to walk a mile, just so we don't do that, we're going to just make, we're not going to walk but just a half a mile, an extra little law just to keep the, the, the other law. And so Jesus opens up this teaching time with the Beatitudes. 
just the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. 4.23 tells us he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And 5, um, really 2 or 3 through 12, uh, Jesus opens up with the gospel. And then after that, after he gives us the gospel and the Beatitudes, he goes into 13 through 16, the very famous salt and light texts. And he says, based on the gospel, this is what it's going to look like for you to live. You're going to live in this world and be salt and light in this world. And so um, automatically... All the people who are Jewish, their little uh, law bells are ringing off in their head. And they're like, wait a second, you've taught so far for you know, a good 16 verses and hasn't, you haven't said anything about law yet. What in the world? And so he knows this, and so he launches into 17 through 20. 17 through 20 will serve as kind of the major heading for us as we're going through these next six sections. Um, and it's basically Jesus answering this question about law. And you can see in 17 through 20, he says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so he, ha- he lets them know, the law is not you know, done away with. Um, I have come to fulfill the law. And so that's kind of easing their minds a little bit. But then he throws out verse 20, which just kind of throws them all off kilter. And he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, wait a second, we know the scribes and the Pharisees. They add laws upon laws and they keep those things actually very well. And so externally, they look extremely righteous. So how in the world are we going to do that? How's that supposed to work? And so as he's finishing up verse 20, um, talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, um, he's basically saying, and speaking of the Pharisees, since I did that, let's go ahead and let me explain something to you. Um, and he's going to go into these next six sections where the scribes and Pharisees have misunderstood the spirit of the law in the Old Testament. And so you'll see a little pattern in the beginning of every one of these six sections. Every one of these six sections, there's a little pattern. Um, you, it basically says, you've heard it said, and then like in 22, look, it says, but I say. Um, look in 27, you've heard it said, and then 28, but I say. Look in 31, you've heard it said, but 32, but I say. 34, but I say. 39, but I say. And so Jesus, what he's doing here, he's going to do that in all six of those sections. Um, So what he's doing here, that's why we're using the word antithesis. He's taking an Old Testament teaching on the commands and he's saying, all right, I am not going to change the spirit of that. Instead, what I'm going to do is correct your understanding of that. You have a misunderstanding of the spirit of that law. And so he's going to do that six times. And we're going to more than likely only do two of those today. Um, and so he's going to do an antithesis. An antithesis is just this, in case I keep kind of throwing out, what, what's the world's an antithesis, Fun. Um, it's a contrast. It's a use of phrases that contrasts um, uh, with each other to create a balanced effect. And here, basically what that means is Jesus is showing the differences between his authoritative, te- authoritative teaching and the way they believed. The, the, the law was written, and then they took that law, and they believed that it meant this. And he's saying, okay, that's not exactly what it means. Because I'm Jesus, and he's already claimed that in 17, that I've come to fulfill the law, therefore, me, Jesus, you've always thought the Scriptures are authoritative, and they are, and the law is authoritative, and it is, but I'm Jesus, and I'm just as authoritative of them as them. So I have the, the messianic right to take the Old Testament Scriptures and then interpret them to you, the actual meaning. So he's, he's saying... You've heard it said, but what I'm going to do is contrast your belief, not what it actually means, contrast your belief, and then give you the right understanding of what the spirit of that law is. And he's going to do that six times. And we're only going to do two of them today. So that's what's going on here. Um, Jesus is going to transform the way that they read the law. And it's the, way, the reason why he wants to do this is because their understanding has driven them to an external um, keeping of the law. And that's not what Jesus is for. And that's not the, the point of the law. And there's a lot of people in the Old Testament that didn't read the law that way. If you read throughout the Old Testament, there are people that had a right understanding of the law, that knew that the law is written to pursue my heart. And, but these scribes and Pharisees weren't in that, that ballgame. They, they it's all external for them. So he's going to explain these things or contrast these things in a way that drives down into the heart. So they'll have a heart change. That's the whole point of what Jesus is doing. And Jesus has this authority to do this because he is the law fulfiller. He has the right to do this. All right, so let's, let me make one little clarification before we do this, okay? Um, you're going to hear, more than likely, as I'm teaching this, you're going to hear this as, as okay, um, 
anger, lust, divorce. This is what I need to do, or this is what I don't need to do. Um, and you're going to hear it as imperatives or commands. And, and they are imperatives. They are commands. But I don't want you to hear it um, as just hearing it as, okay, these are the commands, and this is what I need to do. Instead, don't forget the context. I know we're kind of starting a new week here and we're just jumping right into verse 21, but don't forget the context. The context is, um, remember that Jesus has already given us the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And so based on the gospel in in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, based on the Beatitudes, he has indicated to you, the indicative is, this is who you are now that you're in Christ, now that you've believed in the gospel. So based on the indicatives, which are in... Um, which are in the Beatitudes, now you can live out the imperatives. If you just kind of throw the indicatives away, or, you know, the, blessed are you, you are this, you are this, you are this, you are this, which is saying you are poor in spirit, you are meek, you are merciful, you are pure in heart, you are righteous. If you kind of throw those out and you just hear, okay, do this, don't do this, don't lust, don't be angry, don't get divorced, you just hear those kinds of things, you just are going to revert back to law-keeping. And that's not the spirit of it. So in context, Jesus is giving commands here. The next six sections are all going to be commands, but we have to put them in context, and we have to know, based on the gospel, this is who you are. You are righteous. You are pure in heart if you're a believer. You are completely, completely holy. Now, live in that. So this is a whole different thing. I want to make sure that in your mind, you are not hearing these things as laws and thinking that you have to keep these laws in order to have a right standing in in front of God. It's only based on the gospel, which he's already told us. All right. Now, the two that we're going to look at are the first two. um, And the thing about these first two are this, anger and lust. Um, These two things don't necessarily manifest themselves externally to people very often. These are usually things in our mind. Now, if you're angry, you can be angry in your mind and no one knows. If you're lusting, you can be lusting after someone and no one knows. Sometimes it's external and people see it. But these two things are, are mainly in the mind, which is key because um, external sins people see and you can have far more accountability, much easier. Sins that are in the mind, no one can know, and you can be okay with it and never receive any accountability um, and never put to death these things. Never even really sometimes have a desire to put to death these things. And so we're driving down deep today into your heart where you're going to have to decide whether you're going to say, I'm going to make war on this sin or I'm not going to make war on this sin. And when I say make war, again... (laughs) Make sure you hear this. I am not saying make war in order to be right with Jesus. I'm saying, based on the gospel, and you are declared holy, now live in this as worship. All right. So let's go ahead and let's read the first section, and then we'll talk about it, and we'll read the next section. Verse 21. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, there it is, to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother, will be liable to judgment. You can see Jesus already equating anger and murder. And he says this, He'll be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be held held liable to the council, that more than likely that's the Sanhedrin. His brother will be liable... I'm sorry, I can't read. His brother will be held liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, or raka, or literally, you moron, or you idiot, um, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come quickly and offer your gift. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going um, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out unless you have paid the last penny. All right, so here's the first thing, the first antithesis we want to hear. We want to see that Christ is telling us is this. Um, Jesus is, is saying anger is equal to murder. Anger is equal to murder. That's verse 21 through 26. Now, this is different than the way we've thought. Um, 
at the time, maybe not you, but at the time, they weren't equating the two. They were saying, well, there's anger and well, there's murder. And Jesus is not just addressing externals, which is don't murder. Okay, I'll never murder, but I'll be very, very angry with everybody. As long as I don't actually kill them, then I'm okay. And Jesus is going against that external thought and saying, it's not about the external. You've, you've misunderstood it, scribes and Pharisees. Um, just being angry with them is the same as murder. Jesus is equating anger and murder. And he's saying that if you have this, you are liable to judgment. Um, for Jesus to kill, this is Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, for Jesus to kill with a knife or to engage in character assassination through anger or to belittle another person by calling him a fool is part and parcel of the same spiritual sickness. The root of murder is anger and anger is murderous in principle. Anger is murderous in principle. Um, and then he says in 22 that it's liable to, ju- to judgment. Um, it's liable also to the hell of fire, is what it says. And so he is, is saying that this is a real teaching, that hell is real, and that the end course or the end road of, of being a kind of person that lives in anger and letting it consume you, the end road is hell. Now what he's going to do after that is he's going to take um, this teaching that he's just done where he said... Anger and murder are equivalent. And we're going we're to get to some application. And maybe this is something you never heard. And you can be saying, well, wait a second. Jesus got angry. Um, he did, but he had righteous anger. It wasn't self-serving anger. It was righteous anger. So usually your anger is not like Jesus's anger. Your anger and my anger is most often self-serving anger. Very, very, very t- little times is it actually righteous anger like Jesus. So... Um, Yes, I know it. Um, most of us can say, well, it's not a sin to get angry because Jesus did, but it's a sin to have self-serving anger and especially a sin to act on that anger. Um, and so, all right. After he, he kind of gives this teaching and, and, and transform or contrast what, what they do, he's going to give two illustrations on, on what this looks like. You'll see the illustrations. The first illustration is in 23:24, and the second illustration is in 25:26. So um, we're going to look at these in just a second, and he's showing us the seriousness of, seriousness of anger in these, in these two illustrations. Um, and they're both dealing with the offense that we did, not somebody else that has anger that's going on, but the offense that we did, and you're going to see that. Also, you're going to notice as we look at these two illustrations that they're promoting the opposite behavior. They're not promoting like, all right, you're angry, so don't be. He, he actually um, is promoting the opposite positive behavior that we should do when we experience anger. For example, look in 24. Um, the first opposite positive behavior he promotes is leave your gift and go. You're angry? Leave your gift and go. And then you can see it also in 26. I'm sorry, in 25, um, he says, come to terms while you're going. Like the opposite behavior is just because you're angry, don't just stay there, but instead leave your gift and go. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. You're supposed to live out a positive kind of way in this. Um, And so as he's doing this, he's wanting us to see that um, instead of having anger, we're to be promoting and seeking with all of our power, having right relationships with our brothers and sisters. When we experience or we feel anger in our life, with all of our might, we are to go and try to make things right with our brothers and sisters. So here's the first example. It's an offering um, at, at the temple. And he says, so if you're offering a gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you. Notice that your brother has something against you. Not you have something against your brother, but you, you remember that your brother has something against you. You've done something. Um, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Then come and offer your gift. So what he's wanting you to see here is the necessity of reconciliation. It's absolutely necessary that you do it. While you're there, you, you, you leave your offering because you remember you've done something against your brother. It's necessary that I go right now and go make it right with my brother. All right, second illustration. Look at it. And 25, come to terms quickly um, with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out unless you have paid the last penny. Um, 
It was customary back then, if you owed a debt to someone and you haven't paid it back, they could just throw you in debt jail. They would just throw you in there. And until you actually paid the debt off, you weren't allowed out of jail. And so, um, as you know, when you're in jail, it's tough to earn money. So it would be dependent upon your friends and family to go earn the money for you on your behalf and then come and pay it. And he's saying, let's say that's going on. Come to terms quickly with the accuser. So you've done something wrong. You've, you've created a situation against someone and they're taking you to the, to the debt jail. And he says, come to terms quickly. He, he's wanting to point out here and kind of pulling it back up in the whole anger context. He's wanting to say this. If you have anger against someone, if you've done this, there is an urgency in which you must live by in making this thing right. Do not be okay with days and weeks just kind of going by. He's saying, come to terms quickly with them. Don't let things drag out. Don't let things keep going. Both of these illustrations that he's telling us right here are indicating to us, this is from Sinclair Ferguson, right relationships with others are part of the meaning of the commandment not to murder. It is equivalent to murder if you are continually letting anger in your heart or someone else's heart just keep on going. There's an immediacy and there's an urgency and reconciling with your brother immediately. And Jesus is saying, if you don't do that, it's equal to murder. Murder. Killing someone. So this is really serious. This isn't just like, oh, I got a little anger in my heart. I'm going to let it go and see if God just kind of takes it away. So here's the question. How are you doing today with your anger? Does every little thing set you off in your house or at your job? Is there a deep-seated root of anger when things don't go your way? This is self-seeking and really, in the end, um, an offense towards God. It's an anger towards God. Who do you need to go and be reconciled with? Who do you need to either ask forgiveness from or extend forgiveness to? Who are you holding a grudge against? Because if you have anger, Jesus is equating that with murder. Which is very serious. So this is definitely cleaning up a wrong understanding of scribes and Pharisees because most of us just think, well, murder's murder. And I've, I mean, if we look over the landscape of the population, a small, 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 small percentage of people actually murder people. A very small percentage. However, if you look over the landscape of the population, every single one of us are, as Jesus is saying, murdering because of our anger. And so there's a serious thing that we need to be dealing with. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this at the end, but don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. Your living this out is based on the gospel. I'm going to rehearse this at the end for us as we finish the second one. But your living this out is based on the gospel. It's not based on you buckling down and white knuckling and just getting better. That brings no glory to Jesus. That brings glory to you. All right, so now we're going into this second section. We're going into the second section, verse 27. Um, let me go ahead and read it, and then we'll, we'll kind of go through it. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. They have, a, they have a wrong understanding of this, and so Jesus is going to correct this understanding. He's going to give them the right understanding. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one, mem one of your members than your whole body going to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Sinclair Ferguson, as he's unpacking these verses for us, says this, um, speaking about lust. He says, Sexual relations have become the door through which many professing Christians have walked to their destruction. Notice he says professing Christians. 
sin, sexual, sinful sexual relationships have become the door through which many professing Christians have walked to their destruction. Jesus is referring to the seventh commandment here. You shall not commit adultery. And he is correcting it. He's correcting their thought. Let me go ahead and put, give you the second antithesis. This is what it is. As Jesus is teaching, he's correcting their understanding. and He's saying, lust is equal to adultery. They just knew adultery as the act. That's their understanding. I have never committed the act of adultery. And he is going to take the external understanding of what they think it is and again, drive down into the heart of the understanding. So, the second one is that lust is equal to adultery. Adultery is terrible. Obvious, we would all agree with that. But very few of us would ever think lusting after someone who is not your wife is equal to to cheating on your spouse. Lusting after someone who is not your husband is equal to cheating on him. This is what Jesus is teaching us. Now, this is uncomfortable. This is very uncomfortable. Why talk about this? Why talk about lust in such a direct manner? Um, Besides the fact that it's in the text and Jesus is talking about it, which is a very important reason we should do it. Just a couple stats for you about our country where we are right now. Our country has made lust the driving, one of the key driving engines of our economy. The sin of lust is one of the most driving engines towards money making in the United States. 7,000 pornographic videos are made per week. 7,000 videos are made per Per week. Lust is an avalanche just waiting to take over our country. It is a, there is a commercialization of lust going on. Um, this is a stat you've probably heard. Um, guy, a pastor in Seattle says this almost all the time when he speaks and things like this. He says, more money is spent each year on pornography than all of pro football and pro basketball and pro baseball combined. If you take all the money spent on those three professional sports and combine them, more money is spent on pornography per year than all three of those sports. And there's some pretty high-paid athletes. More money spent on that. So that's why we're talking about it. Because lust is horrific and it's terrible and it is destroying men and women in the United States. It is destroying them. It's destroying... Relationships. It's destroying marriages. And so we have to not just think that adultery is an external action, but it finds its root in lust, and lust is the same as adultery. So let's go ahead and have an understanding of why Jesus is making this antithesis. How is it that the Pharisees misunderstood this? Well, this is why. Remember Matthew's writing to Jews... Um, primarily, and the Old Testament Jewish mind of adultery, the way they thought of this, it was mostly not along the lines of lust. Instead, it was along the lines of theft. A man sees a woman that's not his, that's not his wife, and he goes and he commits adultery with her. Um, the way that they understood is that he stole from the other man. They never ever considered that this is a deeper issue, which is lust. There's a lustful heart that desires someone's um, Property, back then the way they thought of it as property. Um, but it, it's not just love. So G, uh, theft, Jesus is taking this and making an antithesis and say the main thrust of this commandment is not theft, but namely it's lust. Why is he doing this? Why is he wanting to make sure that um, we understand that it's not just an external act, but it's something deep in the heart? Let's, let, me, let me read a little text to you. This is in John. Jesus has a tremendous understanding of the human heart. A tremendous understanding of just how sinful the human heart is. Listen to this text um, in John. It says, But Jesus, 
um, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. This is at the very beginning. He knows what's in man and he's not kind of giving himself there. And he says, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in man, and which is <laughs> that we are extremely, extremely sinful. And so he has to not just deal with external actions because he knows what's in man and we will rationalize and we will make excuses all day long about why things aren't adultery. And so he has to say, he has to call it out right, right now and say, lust equals adultery. So this is probably Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 is probably the most, um, is the least read text by almost all men and maybe even women in this room, it is the most convicting verse probably for every guy in this room and probably every single girl in this room. Um, there, is, there are just no two ways about this. Jesus is labeling lust as adultery and he's applying it to every single person that you've ever looked at and had lustful intent that's not your wife. Every single person. If she's your girlfriend and she's not your wife and you look at her with lustful intent... You are sinning every single time you look at her. If she is just a, a girl that, that's walking down the street or a guy that's just in your office or in your class, every single time you look at him with lustful intent, you are sinning. And it's adultery, Jesus is saying. So, <laughs> bad news, who's not guilty? No one. Which one of us is not guilty? So here's a quick note, and I think this is key. This is really key. Because I want to clear up one misunderstanding. Um, Jesus is not condemning attraction. He's not condemning attraction, um, which is just, I'm, I'm defining attraction as the noticing of someone. If he's condemning attraction, then probably none of us would ever get together and get married. And so there's a, there's a part or a component of the fact that we need to be somewhat attracted to the It's very helpful to be attracted to the other person. You don't want to wake up every... I've seen I've said this before. You don't want to wake up every morning and look at him and be like, oh, gosh, what was I thinking? Like, there's a key component in, in getting together with someone and becoming married that attraction is necessary. And so um, attraction is actually um, a gift of God. He created this. It's normal between men and women. He wants us to be attracted. And so the notice of, seeing, of someone is not the sin. Instead, it's lust, which is the consuming. It attacks us mentally and causes us to commit adultery in our minds. And if we're honest, I think every single one of us can really kind of distinguish the difference between the two. It's not like, oh, I don't understand the attraction between, you know, the difference between attraction and lust, Fudd, please. You know, and until you explain that to me, I'm just going to have to com keep committing lust and unknowingly know this. I think every single one of us can be honest enough and say, okay, I know the difference. I know the difference. So, let's look at verse 28. Um, and I want you to see one little thing. But I say to you that everyone who commits, who looks, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and I know he's, he's saying looking at a woman and he's talking towards men, but there's no reason that this can't be reversed. There's no reason that he can't be speaking to women and say every one of you women who looks at a man with lustful intent, um, you've already committed adultery. And, and yes, it might look different. Men may be thinking external and men may be, and women may be looking at, um, things about the man that they find attractive, that their husband, that my husband's not sensitive. He never compliments me. He never, you know, buys me flowers. But this man, he's so sensitive and he's so kind to his wife. Like, that's the same thing. All right, that's the same thing. Um, but look, look what he says. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful tent has already committed adultery with her. Here it is. These last three words of 20, 28 are really, really key. In his heart, um, the root of all sexual immorality finds its root in your heart. Therefore, if that's the case, we must guard our heart and we must guard our actions. Our heart is key here. We must, like with Job and, and Job 31.1 say, we're going to make a covenant with our eyes not to look lustfully at a woman, but not just um, try to kill the externals. Instead, drive down deep into our heart as well and fix our minds on Christ and the beauty of the gospel and what it means to be forgiven and what it means to be declared completely holy and live in that as an act of worship. So it's not just, well, you know, get triplexwatch.com, get my accountability partners and never, you know, never 
look on the internet anymore. Or just whenever I see people, just kind of do this. You can't, you can't do this the rest of your life every time a girl comes up to you or a guy comes up to you, depending on your gender. You have to drive down deep and start dealing with the root of these issues. You can't live 70 years of your life just doing this. There's something that has to be transformed down deep. Because honestly, honestly, if I just take your whole computer away, men, you can still lust after women every day as you walk around the parking lot or the mall or your class. Just because you don't have a computer doesn't mean anything. So it's, it's not just dealing with externals. We live in the fact that God has declared us righteous. And don't, don't neglect this. I mean, this is huge. The very end of 29 and the very end of 30 says, your whole body be thrown into hell. I mean, that's a pretty big deterrent from committing adultery daily with lust. You should let that be a big deterrent. But don't let that be the thing that keeps you. Again, this is not... Um, not lusting is... You don't just not lust so that you don't go to hell. You not lust because you love Jesus and because He saved you. And there's a huge difference between the two. All right. Um, what Jesus does here after He gives this teaching in 27-28, very much like the, the previous section, is He gives us two illustrations. He lets us have two illustrations about this. And I want you to notice in these two illustrations the violent approach to which we're to face sin. Now, he's speaking of lust here in the context of lust, and he's saying take, an, a, take a violent approach towards lust. But you, can take a, you should take a violent approach towards any sin in your life. He takes a violent approach. This is an absolute, complete in, intolerance that we are supposed to have to, um, sin, in regard to sin. And he is, say, taking... We are to take extreme measures when there's sin in our life. Extreme measures. And honestly, with myself and with people I speak with, I don't see the attitude usually in people's lives that Jesus is calling for in verses 29 and 30. I just don't see it. I see, on the whole, um, an attitude of being okay with some of the things that are going on rather than this extreme, violent, absolute, complete intolerance that we're supposed to have. Now, you'll notice in 29 and 30, he says right eye, right hand. Um, and the reason why he's saying right is because um, most people in the world, and this is just you know common, most people in the world are right hand or right eyed. And so, honestly, this is just, you know, does it doesn't mean... <laughs> Um, left-handers are the people that are abnormal. That's all I can say. Um, anyway, I'm, that's just wrong. Um, but he's saying that most people are right-handed, and he's driving home that um, this is referring to your better eye or your better hand, and he's only driving home the absolute e emphasis of radical extremes that we're supposed to have towards sin. He's saying that the part of you that you use the most, you should, t you should take off. He's showing that this is radical. It isn't like, well, you know, I never use this hand anyway, so just chop it off, whatever, I'm right-handed. He's saying the thing that's most important to you, your right eye, your right hand, destroy those things. Don't just kind of like be okay with something that you basically... It's, it's like this. Um, here's the idea. Um, whenever, whenever we have like a bunch of clothes left over at our house, um, and we're going to take the Goodwill, I never take them the good ones. I never take them the ones that I wear day to day. It's like the ones that, are, that stink, that look like, oh my gosh, did I ever really wear that ever? Oh, those things I don't want. You can have all these clothes I hate. Um, and it's the same idea. We, we're not really being sacrificial by giving all the clothes we hate to people. We're being sacrificial by, by taking the things that are more important to us. That's the same idea here. Um, Jesus is saying your right eye and your right hand, in that it's the, it's the key that we're, we're sacrificing something that is huge to us. So... Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Tear out your eye and throw it away. Jesus is wanting us to see that he really hates sin. He really hates the sin of lust. And it's better that you lose your eye than go into heaven and go into heaven without your eye, then go into hell with your eyes. And the reason why is because the eye is one of the key components of lusting. It's the eye that looks upon and lusts. And then he says in 30, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
if your right hand, he's saying, cut off your hand, throw it away. Why do this? Because it's better that you go into heaven with only one hand than go into hell with two hands. It's better that you cut your hand off, but save your life. It's better. The hand is the thing that reaches out and steals. The hand is the thing that sins. Sinclair Ferguson, as he's commenting on this, makes an ingenious um, insight. He, he has this ingenious insight. And this is, this is really key. I want you to listen to this. He says, usually our practice, and I'm paraphrasing him. He's, he's really smart, and so I have to bring it down so I can understand it before I... Usually our practice is to render anything but the right hand or the right eye. We will offer more money. We will offer more time serving. We will offer more Bible reading. We will offer more prayer. These things are not bad things, but they are not the right eye. They are not the right hand. Jesus is calling for extreme measures, not just trying to make up for, for things that um, he, you already should be doing. He's calling us to take an extreme measure. Now, he's not being literal He's not being literal here. He's not literally saying, cut off your eye and your hand. There was a, there was a guy that lived um, in the 195 to about two, year 240 named Origen. He took this literally. You can Google what he did, but he took it literally. That's not what he's saying. He's not literally saying, um, mutilate your body. Instead, he's saying, we are to deal drastically with sin. We are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper sin. We must not flirt with sin. We must not nibble a little bit around the edges. We are to hate it. We are to crush it. We are to dig it out and we are to put it to death. That's what he's calling us to. And so, if we're going to deal with sin, with lust, the way that he says, let's just be honest here for a second. It's going to be painful. Amputation is painful. There are tears. There is pain. There is blood. There are withdrawals. These things, these tears, these blood, these this withdrawals are indicating to you that you did take the correct drastic nature that you were supposed to do. It is indicating to you that you made the right decision, that you decided to get rid of the horrific sin in your life and that you should be praising God for the pain and tears that you have now because you did deal drastically with this lust issue in your life. If you say, I'm going to deal drastically with it, and yet there's no tears, there's no pain, there's no blood, there's no withdrawals, you have not dealt drastically with it. You've just read the Bible more. You've just given a little bit more money or whatever it is that you think you need to do to deal drastically. But until there is pain, amputation is painful and you will probably notice it the rest of your life. And this is the nature in which Jesus is calling us to deal with this, this sin of lust in our life. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Matt Chandler, he's a pastor in Texas, was kind of talking about this. And this is what he said. This is, this is really good. It's better that I never look at my children's faces. It's better that I'm never able to see to wipe the tears from their eyes. It's better that I can never hold my wife's hand and go to heaven than to keep these things and be able to do those things for 75 years and go to hell. It's better. You've got to believe what Jesus is saying. Sin, the sin of lust, is so encompassing, is so overtaking. And he's saying that you need to deal drastically with it. Never being okay with it. So what do we do here? Are we all just adulterers? Are we all just angry murderers and lustful adulterers? Yes, we are. Every single one of us are. Let's not mix words here. Let's not try to kid ourselves. We are. Which shows us our need for the gospel. So are we all these things? Yes, but are we all these things if we're in Christ? No. You are not that. You are meek. You are righteous. You are pure in heart. 
If you're in Christ, you are not, you are not an angry murderer. You are not a lustful adulterer. This is the beauty of the gospel. What does Jesus have to say about anger and lust? He's saying that, that yes, they are sins, but He also died for these sins, and you are completely forgiven for these sins if you're a Christian. So live in this truth. Don't let these sins overtake you, but all of your, not just these sins, but all of your sins that you have done are forgiven. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is so glorious. Now that you are in Christ, you are not these things. You are not these things. Therefore, you don't do these things. Instead, based on his work on the cross and his declaration of imputed righteousness, of him giving you and putting inside of you his righteousness, these things are not true of you. And you may live these, you may say, well, Fudd, that's not true, you know, because just last night, just last week, um, just this morning, I find my, I found myself doing this. I found myself looking at a woman, looking at a man. I, I find myself constantly angry all the time. And I'm telling you that this is not you. This is not you. You have, now that you are in Christ, God in you. He has given you the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1-8 tells you, you have power in you to kill this thing in your life. You are not that, even though you did it this morning. In Christ, based on the gospel, you can put this sin to death, Colossians 3-5, Romans 8-12, I think it is, 13. 13. You can put this thing to death. You don't have to live in that reality anymore. You are not an adulterer anymore in Christ. I want to read you a quote from a guy, I can't pronounce his last name. He's Billy Graham's grandson. His first name is Tullian, and I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. Um, he's a pastor in Florida. It's like Alphabet, but that's his last name. Just throw a bunch of letters in there, that's what it looks like. Um, this is what he says, I promise you. He says this, A taste of wild grace, and he means by wild grace, the fact that God himself in Christ would forgive your most heinous of sins. I know if you're married and you look at someone that's in a lustful way and you've committed adultery with someone that's not your wife, you commit adultery with someone that's not your husband and the conviction falls on you and you just, I can't deal with the fact that I continually sin against my spouse in this way. How is it that I can ever be forgiven for this? And God's saying the cross is wildly larger than that sin and you are forgiven completely. This wild grace that God has extended to you, He's saying this, this taste of this beautiful wild grace that that sin is not held against you is the best catalyst for real work living in our lives. It is not guilt. The best catalyst is not guilt over the sin. It is not fear for condemnation. It is not a list of rules to keep. This taste of wild grace, this extended forgiveness of the most heinous sins that, we forget, that we've committed is beautiful to extend us on. It is the catalyst that launches us into being filled with the Spirit and living a life of mission and living in what we've already attained, holiness. That's just... <laughs> that is a beautiful truth to live under. So I know that this, this lust, this anger that you feel in your life is real and you will continually experience it. And just because you've tasted wild grace and been forgiven does not mean you don't seek to put it to death. Of course you do. But know that you are forgiven and that you live in the gospel now. So what I want to do here is this. I want to have a time where we we're being honest with God. We're going to go into our time of worship where maybe just for the first little bit you need to, you need to sit and you need to consider your life. Consider where the root of this anger is. Consider where the root of this lust is. And confess it and repent it and be vigilant to say, I want to live in such a way to put the sin to death. But God, thank you that you have already forgiven for me. And by the power of the Spirit, help me walk in this. Help me live in this and hold true to what I've attained. And by the, by the power of the Spirit, put this thing to death. And when I see that it's dead, it's not because I've done it. It's because, Holy Spirit, you've done it. And when you fall, 
when you sin against your spouse next week, when you sin against your children next week, when you sin against your future spouse next week, that's not debilitating and life is not over in the Christian walk. You live in the gospel. You praise God that you are forgiven and you continue marching forward in gutsy guilt that you've been forgiven. Yes, you feel guilty, but you are now walking forward in the gospel. That's pretty gutsy. I'm going to pray and I just say, I just want to ask you that however the Lord is leading, you be obedient to that. Maybe you want to sit and pray and repent and then stand because of the gospel. Maybe you want to just stand and worship. Um, If you don't know Christ and you know that you have sin in your life and you know that you need forgiveness, I would just ask that you would come talk to me. Talk to the person you came with right now. Today is the day for salvation if you're not a believer. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your law that shows us where we don't live for you. Thank you that you don't deal in externals, but you deal with the heart that we we are so legalistic, Father, that we can find the rules and keep the rules, but that's not what you're interested in is just keeping rules. You want a deep affection for Jesus. And so we've looked at two things today. We've looked at anger and we've looked at lust and you've shown us that those things are far more drastic than we thought. Anger is murder and lust is adultery. And whether we're married or not, we're committing adultery on our current or future spouse. We've, if we're angry, we've actually committed murder. And so, Father, convict us where we need convicting, of course, but help us rest in the gospel. Help us rest in the beautiful truth that Christ has forgiven us. And based on these things that He's already shown us in the Beatitudes, that we are now pure in spirit, and help us live in that. Don't let this be a time where we, as we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, stay there, but yet rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Christ and live a life of worship. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your spirit that you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.